You light a small candle and watch in amazement as the flame strikes the darkness. You drive through winding roads late at night with the hope that you will arrive safely to your destination as your headlights pierce the darkness in front of you. You wake up in the middle of the night and stumble down the the steps to get that midnight snack, and all of a sudden, the room fills with a blinding light as you turn on the light switch, experiencing the darkness disintegrating all around you. The impact of light on darkness is undeniable. In his world-famous play, Macbeth, William Shakespeare has caught the attention of millions throughout the centuries with his brilliant interplay between light and darkness. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the play, darkness overtakes most of the play, and there is very light to be seen throughout it. From the very first act, the cover of night is invoked whenever anything terrible is going to happen. Lady Macbeth, for example, asks thick night to come with the smoke of hell so her knife won't see the wound it makes in the peacefully sleeping King Duncan. She then calls for the murderous spirits to prevent heaven from peeping through the blanket of the dark to cry, hold, hold, implying that light light offers a form of protection from evil and is the only thing that could stop her from such evil acts like killing Duncan. And throughout the play, Shakespeare masterfully uses light and darkness to enhance the images of both good and evil. And it's this interplay between darkness and light that intensifies the plot and engages his audience. Well, this morning, here in Isaiah 9, we find a comparable plot and interplay between darkness and light. Set in the middle of prevailing visions of judgment against Judah, chapter 9 is one of the most memorable prophecies from this book of the coming Messiah. And while arrogantly celebrating their escape from both Syria and Israel as their own achievement, Judah has just found out, as recorded for us in chapter 8, verse 7, that their ally, Assyria, is in fact actually their oppressor. For this reason, moving forward by faith in God seems inadequate to the people of Judah. Judah, however, is not without hope. For in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 8, they're reminded once again that God is with them, Emmanuel. And yet, in ordinary human-like fashion, they continue to wring their hands over the surface-level crises they are in, and they have little awareness of the grandeur of that truth. God is with us. And so it's by the end of chapter 8 that we find God's people raging against him, and as a result, they are encompassed with this spiritual darkness. Being a book of contrast, Isaiah here in our passage this morning holds out for us one of those most striking distinctions of God's grace. And it's with this metaphor of darkness and light that he gives us a glimpse into how incredible the advent the incarnation of Jesus Christ truly is. This morning, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit and through the pages of God's inspired word, we will come face to face with the light that not only shatters the darkness for Judah, but shatters the darkness for all mankind. So it's here in these pages that we find ourselves staggering under the brilliance and splendor 
of the light that is to come. And as we do, we behold this shattered darkness, which gives way to an inexpressible, increased joy, all because of the birth of a child, a child who is the Prince of Peace. So notice with me, first of all, this morning here in Isaiah 9, the shattered darkness. As already noted, the darkness of the scene of Judah has fallen with increasing devastation throughout chapter 8. And then we continue to see its effects here in chapter 9. In fact, notice the severity of the situation in the words of Isaiah. Gloom, anguish, contempt. In verse 2, we see darkness, deep darkness. The yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor. Verse 4, battle, tumult, and blood in verse 5. One commentator notes, by choosing their own way rather than God's way, trusting in human glory rather than in God and his glory, the nation of Judah had plunged itself into extreme darkness. They were now in confusion and gloom. Now they are the prey of the very nation they trusted in, Assyria. They had been brought into contempt, humiliated by the Assyrian conquest because of their lack of faith and the lack of obedience to God. Uh, Certainly, those were dark days for Judah as they experienced God's discipline in their lives. But notice this is not where God intends to leave them. No, God in his steadfast love will not leave them in the dark. For God is greater than Assyria, and he promises that just as they have experienced the grief and despair of conquest, they will also experience a joy and triumph of victory. You see, while the effects of the darkness are very apparent in this chapter from the beginning of verse 1, there's a surprisingly gracious and positive tone. It predicts the end of this gloom, the end of this darkness for Judah. In fact, Verse 1 actually moves rather quickly from the darkness and distress of Judah's present circumstance to the hope and the promise of the future. Notice down with me in the text how it moves of, with events in the past to the events in the future. There will be no gloom for who who was in anguish in the former time, but in the latter time. He brought into contempt, he has made glorious. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Oh, there is a a glimmer of hope in the midst of this darkness. You've probably heard it said before, notice the light at the end of the tunnel. Most often that's said in the midst of a dark season of struggle. Maybe you've been uh, on a bike ride and you've gone through a tunnel where it's dark and you can just see that small little light at the end of the tunnel. And so you know it's, it's a reality. When you keep going, you'll finally break into the light and see where you're at. Well, that is what's happening here for the people of Judah. They get a glimmer of the light that is to come. But what is it that will change their present circumstances? It's not what they had hoped for. It's not Assyria, their ally. So what will it be? Why can the prophet Isaiah write of no more gloom, no more contempt, no more darkness? We're given the answer in verse 2. Because the people have seen a 
great light, and on them has light shone. Isaiah's use of the past tense in these verses, what has been termed as the prophetic perfect tense, is used here to stress the certainty of the fulfillment of this prophecy. You see, Isaiah was so sure that this prophecy would come true that he speaks of it as if it had already happened. Now, this is the essence of what biblical hope, what Matt spoke of last week, is. The darkness is shattered by the light. Isaiah knows it will happen. This light would bring a great reversal of their circumstances. In place of anger, defeat, and famine, there would be joy, victory, and abundance. One pastor writes, the ones walking in darkness would suddenly find themselves blinking under a new light they had never seen before. Oh, they deserved what had happened to them. The gloom, the darkness was well-deserved, but God was not satisfied with that for his people. And so God will take the initiative. God will move into the darkness and into the gloom, and by this great light, God will shatter the yoke of the burden, the staff and the rod. Here, these are instruments used to dominate slaves and force them to work, and God will break the oppression from their enemy, just as he has done before, just as he had done with Gideon, an unlikely hero with his small, humble army of 300 men who defeated Midian in the valley of Jezreel. And so God will once again defeat Israel's enemies. This is the story that Israel has known, even from way back when God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. So by this great light, God will burn the boots and the garments rolled in blood of their enemies, verse 5. Here is a sign of victory in war when the spoils would be dedicated to God and the military equipment of the enemy would be set on fire. The picture given in this prophecy is not one of just a minimal defeat, a minimal victory. No, this is an utter defeat over the enemy. This great light will truly and fully shatter the darkness. The result of this will be is Isaiah explains in verse 3, an increased joy. Consistent with this metaphor of light is this mood of joy and and rejoicing we see here in verse 3. So read it again with me. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when when they divide the spoil. The you here in this verse is God himself. For he is the one spreading his great light to more and more people, multiplying the remnant of his people and increasing their joy, not just in their freedom. No, it's first and foremost in him. You see, just as we experience a certain joy when the lights finally come on after a power outage, so do God's people rejoice when the darkness and gloom is overtaken by his light. Oh, but this joy is not just some meager or temporal joy. No, this joy is an everlasting joy that increases as we abide in him. Isaiah here is using two illustrations to describe the the type of joy that will be experienced. First, he compares it with the joy of workers at harvest time. 
the exuberance when there is an unusually massive harvest that has taken place. It's kind of like that feeling of joy that overwhelms you when a huge bonus shows up on your paycheck one Friday afternoon. But secondly, he compares it to the gladness of soldiers dividing the spoil. That is this euphoria soldiers would have had when the hordes of good they've brought home from their plunder and victory over the enemy nation, and they look at it and see what they have done. You might say it's similar to that feeling when your team wins the Super Bowl or the hard-fought in-state rival. These are two illustrations of wild, celebrative joy. It's not that small joy golf clap. Darkness is broken, light, yay. No, this is wild. This is celebrative. What joy. The triumph of light over darkness creates a joy that is unbridled. It explodes forth. But the question still remains, what is this great light? How will God shatter the darkness? How will he increase his people's joy? How will he accomplish this great feat? Verses 6 and 7 give us the answer. For to us, a child is born. Really, Isaiah, through the birth of a child, a son? You see, friends, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us. All the darkness, the gloom, the contempt, the despair, all our sin is a child. The triumph of God's grace over our depressing failures resulting in joy unspeakable and full of glory comes to us through the most unexpected means. The birth of a child Isaiah has previously prophesied of this coming child in chapter 7 and verse 14. It is this child who would be born of a virgin that would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And once again, Isaiah's prophecy is precise. A child will be born. A son is given. The second line here emphasizes that this is a a work of God's gracious, gracious giving and initiative This is not just some mere coincidence that is about to take place. No, this child, a son, is given. We have heard that phrase and that verse over and over again, those of us who have grown up in the church and have spent time in the church. We hear it sung at this time of the year, this season. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. You hear it so much that perhaps it becomes just old hat. Yep, we know. Okay, Don, Dan, get on. <laughs> get on with it. What's the really exciting part? But wait. God acts on behalf of his people. Let me say that again. God acts on behalf of his people. Against all expectation, God reveals his glory through the birth of a child. This is who shatters the darkness and increases our joy. But who is this child Isaiah is talking of? Who is this son God has given? 
Verses 6 and 7 continue to inform us that this child, this son, is like none other. This child is the prince of peace. Isaiah's words here wonderfully capture the royal nature of this coming child. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the invincible figure striding across the world stage, taking gracious command. He is the one who is breaking the yoke of the burden, the rod of the oppression. This is the one who will increase joy by shattering the darkness. Mighty, but yet a small child. A king, but still sent as an infant. Weak and innocent. The contrasts within this prophecy are captivating and thrilling, aren't they? But even more captivating, even more thrilling is this infant, this child, this king, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, this prince of peace. These eight words form four titles that represent the character and the role of this forever king. And these titles explain to us the identity of the one whom Isaiah writes of. You see, this is no ordinary child. He is the wonderful counselor, the one from whom all wisdom comes. The best ideas, the best strategies, the best advice. This title here suggests that this son's life will somehow exhibit Miraculous acts of God. That God will, through this child, demonstrate his extraordinary wisdom to all mankind. He is the the mighty God. The divine ruler who defeats his enemies easily and handily. The psalmist depicts the relationship in these two words. Mighty and God like this. The Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord Yahweh, mighty in battle. He is the everlasting Father, the eternal protector, the tender caregiver who loves us endlessly, who adopts us as his own sons and daughters. He is the Prince of Peace, the ideal ruler who brings peace and prosperity, rest to his subjects, the one who will speak peace into a storm. Into darkness, the one who reconciles us to himself while we were still his enemies. Oh, this is no mere pipe dream from a pageant winner of world peace someday. No, this is the one who is the author of peace. The one who makes a promise and always delivers on his promise. The one who says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Do I give to you? You see, this child is the king to end all kings. He is a king of the most unparalleled clemency and grace, writes the great preacher Jonathan Edwards. Never, never was a kingdom ruled by a government so mild, gentle, and gracious. 
What a contrast. Mighty, and yet a child. You see, church, this is the king, the prince of peace that Bloomington Normal needs. This is the prince of peace our world needs. He is the prince of peace that you and I need. For this child is the forever king whose dominion and rule will never end. Isaiah continues to explain here in verse 7 that he is the king who will, not just, who will sit on the throne of David and he will establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness. It will not just be a quick judge, justice. It will not just be a quick sitting on the throne. No, this is a forever justice and righteousness. So he will be wholly unlike Judah's present king, Ahaz. Nor will he be like any other king that Judah has. What hope there must have been to hear these words in this moment. This moment of spiritual darkness to hear and see a glimmer of light. Nothing will be able to successfully oppose this king's authority and undermine his rule. And so Isaiah concludes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. It's a phrase of confidence. This will happen. He is certain. Isaiah has hope. He is confident that this will take place. And the good news is, it has. For 700 years after these words were proclaimed to Judah by Isaiah, God would send this forever king to the world as a baby, the word becoming flesh to dwell among us. And the contrast continue. For this forever king would be born in a stable, lame in a manger. Nothing seemingly royal took place that night in the, that little town of Bethlehem beneath the starlit sky, the light of the world though was piercing the darkness. Oh, just an infant wrapped in swaddling cloths. But in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness would not overcome it. With unsaleable zeal, determination, and passion, God was unfolding his wonderful plan. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, the angels sang to the shepherds that night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And did you hear it? Good news, great joy, for unto you is born a Savior. The zeal of the Lord of hosts had done it. Through this child born that holy night, the people who walked in the darkness, on them a light has shone. Matthew 4 states it this way, those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And 30 years later, this child, this son, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, would stand in a synagogue and read from the same prophet that we read from this morning, 
Isaiah declaring, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And again, God Almighty himself did it. God took the initiative. God brought himself to man. Once again, it was not at all as we would expect it to happen. No, the contrast continue here. It was not as a, a mighty warrior engaged in battle, destroying his enemy. No, rather, it was he himself being destroyed for us. A sacrifice. A sacrifice for the sins of all men. You see, friends, this child would bear the sins of the world in his body on a tree for you and for me. And once again, God would take the initiative to save his people. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile us to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. By his death, God was just, but by his death, God was also gracious. For the good news is that God's Son, Jesus Christ, didn't stay in that grave. No, he rose again, conquering death, victorious over the grave. And so the Apostle Paul would write, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you have yet to experience the true hope, the true joy and peace of Christmas. Now please hear this good news this morning. That child, promised by Isaiah here in Isaiah 9, born that holy night, was born to take your sin. By living a perfect life, you could never live. By dying a death, you deserved to die. He stepped in your place and conquered the grave like no one else could do. Friend, this is the good news for you. And so, friend, turn in faith to him this morning. Repent of your sin and bow your knees to this prince of peace, this forever king who will shatter your darkness and will increase your joy in him forevermore. And church, those of you who have turned in faith, repented, this is still good news for us today. This good news rings in our ears and should resonate in our hearts. Whatever darkness we may experience, maybe this past year has brought about much sorrow in your life from the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's brought much change. Jobs, gone, New jobs come in. Maybe it's brought in the sorrow of expected things. What you hoped for no longer being here. The good news is that peace is still here. Peace is here to stay. 
So when we read Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is still true for us today. Peace is here. The story has been told time and time again of a crisp, clear morning over 100 years ago when thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers put down their rifles and stepped out of their trenches and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. It was impromptu and no one planned it, wrote one author. It started with the German officer Walter Kirchhoff, a tenor with the Berlin Opera. He stepped forward and sang the words in German and then in English. In the clear, cold night of Christmas Eve, his voice carried far. The shooting had stopped, and that silence, in that silence, he sang these words. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. The Allied forces were shocked, startled. In the silence, a German singing these words. They knew the song well, and so they sang it back. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. Glories stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. And gradually, the German troops crawled forward into what was called no man's land from their trenches, calling out Merry Christmas in English, and the Allied soldiers warily came out to greet them. Then, over the course of the morning, Troops exchanged gifts. They shared food and played games together. But by midday, officers summoned the soldiers back to their trenches, and once again, the fighting began. In the hundred years since, this event has come to be known as the Christmas Truce of 1914, and has been seen as a, a kind of miracle, a rare moment of peace. The war, as historic history tragically records, destroyed almost that entire generation of young soldiers on both sides. The memory, however, lives on for those who lived of those few short hours when their master had been neither king or kaiser, but the prince of peace. You see, the reality is for us as believers, we don't have to just hope, just wish for a rare moment of peace in our world, like the one on the battlefield that day. No, Isaiah 9 is true. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The Prince of Peace has come, and of his peace there will be no end. And so, Father, we rest in that truth this morning. We rest in the peace that has come. 
We know in our world the unsettledness we see the divisions we read about it we watch it across our television screens and then we know in our own homes our own individual lives individual unsettled so we Try to figure out how to resolve that. God, we here in the church are are no different in trying to find peace in our own doing. Change something here or there. And yet, God, this morning, through your holy, inspired word, we come face to face with the Prince of Peace. For you have spoken light into darkness. You have shown us the beauty, the radiance of the light of this world. So God, I pray for us as Calvary Baptist Church that we would rest in that peace. And that we would go and declare that to the world around us that we would be ambassadors of this Prince of Peace. That we would speak it, but also show it in our lives. And so, Father, I don't know what's happening in each and every one of the hearts here this morning or watching online. But what I do know is that each and every one of us has faced spiritual darkness So the one here this morning that may be still in that darkness, would you awaken their hearts? Would you make the dead alive again so that they might come and bow their knee to the Savior? So that we as the church might rejoice that one who was lost is now found. And for those here this morning who are your children God would you wrap your arms of peace and love around them may they know and experience this rest 